Listeners like you keep the Historian's Podcast on the Internet. Click our GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. Hi, I'm John Sweet. I'm a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm excited to be here talking about my new book, The Sewing Girl's Tale. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Through remarkable historical detective work, John Sweet recounts in vivid detail Lana Sawyer's decision to charge an upper-class man named Henry Bedlow with rape at a time when there was virtually no precedent for doing so, leading to a raw courtroom drama, riots in the streets, appearances by famous Americans of the New Republic, and vigorous public debate over class privilege and double standards. John Sweet's book, The Sewing Girl's Tale, is subtitled A Story of Crime and Consequences in Revolutionary America. You're talking here about a a rape case, and it's the early years of the American Republic. It's still this late 1700s. Couldn't have been the first rape case in uh, in the colonies, or, or was it? This is a book about a young woman of modest means, a 17-year-old sewing girl who faced a terrible decision whether or not to charge a rich, well-connected man with rape. Uh, it was a decision that ultimately transformed her life um, and his. It was a story about youth and the lure of romance, about trust and betrayal, about recourse and recovery. In some ways, it's also a kind of a mystery. I spent years puzzling over the fragmentary evidence that exists and contradictory claims to figure out what actually happened. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand the characters at the heart of the story. What motivated this young woman named Lana Sawyer? Where did she get the strength and courage um, to pursue her case? How did she endure um, the trial and the other consequences she faced? Um, and to what extent did she recover? An unusual occurrence to have uh, a rape trial of a rich person by a relatively uh, poor person. I mean, this w- was not something that was done? This was the first time in about half a century that a gentleman in New York City had been charged with rape, legally charged with rape. There were a number of things that were unusual about this case. First, it was really rare for a, um, a woman to, of lower status to charge a gentleman with rape. In New York City, the last time that it happened was about 45 years earlier. That's quite a span. Ordinary men, working men, soldiers, black men were more likely to get charged with rape uh, than gentlemen, just because it was harder to prosecute them and they mm. had greater access to retaliation. But tell us a little bit about both uh, the people that you cover a lot, the, the woman who was raped and the and the rapist, Lana Sawyer, the 17-year-old seamstress, and the defendant, a man named Harry Bedlow, were they? The young woman at the center of the story is, her name is Lana Sawyer. If the report had not been, of this trial had not been published, we probably would not know anything about her. She was from a modest family. Um, she was born in 1776. Her father, father was a, um, a wheelwright and carriage maker, um, but mm-hmm. he died when she was about seven, just as the war was ending. Her mother remarried, um, and her stepfather was a branch pilot, who was one of the men that um, guided boats in and out of New York Harbor. So she came from a 
working family, um, a family of modest circumstances at this point. They were renting uh, the house they lived in. So she came, she was from a working family. She had to work as a seamstress as a 17-year-old. She was very different in social status from Henry Bedlow. Henry Bedlow, who was known by his family as Harry, came from one of the city's elite old Dutch families. Uh, his father had been a ship captain and a minor merchant. My sense is that his father wasn't a very effective businessman and that the family mostly relied on inherited wealth from his mother's family, which was the, the Rutgers family. Um, and they owned a big old farm, uh, which is kind of in the Two Bridges area of Manhattan now, um, and had been, was just in the process of being subdivided and developed. So that turned into an enormous real estate fortune. But at this time, um, Henry Bedlow didn't really have any money of his own. He didn't go to college. He doesn't seem to pursue a profession. He considered himself a gentleman, which is to say somebody who lived on um, income and didn't actually work. He's described uh, by someone as a great rake or a very great rake. Was he? Well, that was essentially what his attorneys during the trial said. They said that he had a he was notorious for his uh, as a womanizer um, and for his treatment of women. He there is very little evidence of you know what actually he was up to. There we there are some things we do know about his past. But what his own attorney said was that he had a reputation as somebody who was pursued women um, at pretty much any cost. That he was familiar and a known figure at this brothel um, in which the, um, the sexual assault he was charged char sexual assault he was charged with took place. In a brothel, how did this transpire, or what what happened here? And of course, I realize I'm asking you to make a judgment as to what as to what happened. But how did these two? Harry and Lana meet, or and how did the, why did the rape, or how did the rape take place? So this is a story that in some ways illustrates what we might think of today as the difference between stranger assaults um, and acquaintance rates or date rape. Lana Sawyer met Henry Bedlow um, initially because she was walking down um, Broadway um, and was getting um, harassed on the street um, sexually harassed on the street by a group of Frenchmen. And this gentleman interposed to supposedly rescue her and sent the Frenchman on their way. Um, and then he offered to walk her home. And when he introduced himself at her doorstep, he said that his name was Lawyer Smith, which was not his true name. They ran into each other a week later again um, in the street, and he walked her home again, and at that point he asked her out to go for a walk with him some evening. And she was clearly flattered and charmed by him and interested, but she was but also really hesitant. But eventually he kept uh, after her, um, and she agreed to go out with a walk, for a walk with him um, on, on a Wednesday evening. So he came to pick her up, and she was sitting on the stoop, and he told her that they were going to go meet a friend, of, pick up a friend of hers, um, and another gentleman at her friend's house. So they walked around the corner, um, and the friend wasn't home. And he said, oh, well, they must already be at the battery. So the friend wasn't at the battery, but it was through these, this series of kind of, of falsehoods and misrepresentations that he enticed her um, out into the evening. Um, she evidently, you know, must have enjoyed talking to him. Um, they stayed out until well after dark, until... It was quite late. 
Um, finally, she realized what time it was because church bells were striking, um, and she got panicked that her parents were going to be upset with her for being out so late, um, and they started to walk home. But as they walked up Broadway and got to her cross street, he had his arm around her and wouldn't let her turn there. He ended up, and it was really at the next cross street and street at the foot of City Hall, what's now City Hall Park, um, that he started tr- trying to pull her down Ann Street, and she was like, no, I'm not going down Ann Street. Uh, that's a street full of brothels. It's disreputable. Um, I, I'm not going to go down there. And he began to force her, and so she began to try to scream, and his hand reached up to cover her face. And that was when she realized that this was not some lawyer Smith. Um, this was not a man with good intentions. And he ended up dragging her into a brothel. The madam was really reluctant to let him in at first, um, but he was really perseverant and ended up coming, dragging her around, Lana, around to the back door. So that's kind of the scenario of how they met. And is that where the rape occurred, was inside the brothel? Rape occurred in the back room of this brothel, yeah. What did the madam think about that? I mean, she's in the sex business, but this isn't one of her people. I spent a lot of time trying to research um, what what the business of prostitution was like and what motivated what fact what strategic business factors a woman like her name was mother carrie the kind of business decisions a woman like mother carrie would have to make and she had a i think a bit of a difficult decision here henry bedlow was clearly a loyal customer of hers um there were a zillion brothels on that block as i've been researching this i found out just what a a red light district that block was. So he could have chosen another brothel. He chose this one where he had a relationship. But she also, Mother Carrie, uh, the madam, did not want a scandal, did not want a problem. Running a brothel, it's interesting, being a prostitute, charging for sex was not illegal at the time. Um, but running a brothel was. Usually the law took a blind eye at prostitution. Um, but if you have a, you know, a real scandal, um, it could create a problem for her. So I think that's I think she eventually got worn down by Henry Bedlow, knocking at her front door and knocking at her back door, and decided it was easier to let him in um, than to have him making a ruckus in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this exposed Mother Carrie to a lot of risk. And I think both Henry Bedlow and Mother Carrie the Madam really underestimated Lana Sawyer. I think they thought that she, like most victims, uh, sex survivors of, of acquaintance rape, would keep silent, um, mm-hmm. that she wouldn't come forward, she wouldn't make up, um, demand a public accounting, she wouldn't go to the law. In some ways, a realistic expectation, um, even today, um, the vast majority of acquaintance rapes um, go unreported and unprosecuted. She got home at some point. How did she escape from this, this situation? So according to her testimony, Lana spent a lot of the night first by um, physically resisting Henry Bedlow, who then overpowered her, and then trying to escape from that back room. According to her testimony, it was so dark um, that she couldn't see anything, but she was feeling her way around the room, um, which was it's interesting. We happened to know that it was a room without plaster on the walls, it was, um, planks, rough plank walls. Um, and she said that the window shutters were, the window and the window shutters were um, closed, and she couldn't figure out how to unlock them. And the door was closed and locked, and she couldn't figure out how to operate the lock in the dark. And every time, 
Meanwhile, every time she got up, Henry Bedloe would um, grab her and pull her back into bed. Um, and one thing we do know is that it was super dark that evening, um, that night. Um, it was a night with a new moon, which is, I'm always confused by, but new moon means there was no moonlight. And in fact, there was an eclipse at sunrise the next morning, so sunrise happened later than usual. So it was, in fact, very dark. And there is there was a question during the trial about the forensics of that room, whether it really was, um, whether the window really could have been locked and the door, whether the door had been locked, which raises some interesting questions about whether Mother Carey had altered the room after um, the assault or not. So she got away after the sun came up? or is Because at some point she's, she gets away, doesn't she? Yeah, so the next morning, um, the household starts to rise and have breakfast. Henry Bedloe got out of bed at a certain point, around probably around 8 o'clock, um, and put on his clothes and said, Lana, you're going to have to get out of here because Mother Carrie's not going to want you um, in this room. So Henry Bedloe left, and Lana kind of took stock, and she noticed that her gown, her dress um, was torn, um, that she couldn't really go out in the street um, with her dress in tatters, not properly secured. So she spent a while, um, I think she was also really traumatized and disoriented um, and sleep deprived, but she seems like she spent about two hours in that room um, taking stock, um, sewing back together her dress, getting herself clothed, and then she ventured out into the hallway uh, where she was greeted by Mother Carrie, who, which was an it's a really interesting moment, Mother Carrie said to her, dearie, <laughs> with that, mm-hmm. um, condescending, familiar tone, dearie, um, I've looked out front, there's nobody on the street, so you can go out from the front if you want, and nobody will see you, or you can go out the back if you're, if you're afraid people are going to see you. And Lana said, I'm going to go out the front, I don't care who sees me, even if it's my father. And that should have been, that was a kind of defiance, a kind of flash of anger from Lana, that I, in some ways, I think is a really important moment, because it should have signaled to Mother Carrie that she had a problem, mm-hmm. that Lana wasn't going to be grateful to Mother Carrie for being discreet. She was defiant and angry and not interested um, in keeping things quiet. Lana eventually gets away. I just need to advance this story somewhat. But she does file a complaint. Or What, what, does, she, what does she do to make this a, a case that goes to trial? Lana faced, and her family faced, a complicated calculus of whether to file legal charges. For me, this is really more interesting um, than the question of what, whether she was really raped, which I think is pretty clear, is the question of what do you do about that. So she had to tell a series of people her story, mostly men, and convince them that her case was worth pursuing rather than setting aside or covering up. And the first of those was her stepfather, um, then her stepfather, in a really unusual move, um, went to um, consult with private attorneys to help her prepare a uh, formal statement. Um, and I think part of that was to get their opinion as to whether this was a case that looked like it would be viable. Then they went to um, the mayor, who was the, basically the chief law enforcement officer in the city, um, where they f- filed a formal complaint. The mayor performed his own little investigation where he summoned Mother Carrie, the brothel keeper, and interrogated her um, before making a decision. Um, He was convinced that she was lying 
uh, Mother Carey was lying um, and that the charges were sound, um, so he ordered Bedloe's arrest. Uh, after that, the case was referred to the Attorney General. Um, the Attorney General had referred the matter to a um, grand jury, which returned an indictment. Mm. Um, all of this happened within a couple of weeks. And this is becoming a big case in New York City, right? I mean, there were people really interested in this, and there was coverage in the newspapers of the day. You know, what's interesting is the newspapers never covered criminal trials, and well, at least they didn't cover rape trials involving elite men until after the trial was over, and people had concluded that the man um, was guilty. So in this case, there's no newspaper coverage of the trial until afterwards, but there was intense interest in this case. The trial, after an indictment was returned, um, word spread throughout the city. Um, we know this from diaries. Um, people went to the courthouse on the Tuesday of that week, thinking the trial was going to happen that day. They didn't, the um, court stock it was too full. They didn't get to it. So a lot of people went back the next day. courtroom was this massive chamber, which had been built to house the U.S. House of Representatives back in 1789. The courtroom was packed. Um, so we know about this trial because um, an English attorney who had moved to New York after being involved in a duel in London um, had, was there, and he'd come prepared to take notes, and he found it was hard to find a place to sit where he could use pen and, pa and paper. He eventually published a report of the trial, um, which is the first, this was an answer to a question you asked earlier, the report, William Witch. Um, this English attorney published was the first published report of an American rape trial. So this is the first rape trial in American history where we really know what the witnesses said, what the attorney said, what the judges said. Um, and in this case, one of the things we know um, is when the, the spectators interrupted the attorneys or interrupted the proceedings um, with expressions of outrage or approval. They clapped and they hissed and they stomped their feet at various points. While you, you uh, write or it's written that this case engendered riots in the streets, was this while the, the um, courtroom drama is going on or while, while, the, case, while the case is being tried? No. The, one of the crazy things about the legal system in this period is how fast um, justice came. Um, so in this case, the rape trial is about six weeks after Lana Sawyer and Henry Bedloe first met. Um, the trial took place in one day, in one sitting. Um, so it started, I think, probably around noon and ended at one in the morning. Um, they didn't take breaks for dinner or anything. People went home, and I think Henry Bedloe must have thought that was the end of it. Mm. But anger in this, he was acquitted. Yes, he was acquitted in the case, right? Yeah, and I think people found, observers found that somewhat surprising um, because of the nature of the evidence. And a lot of working men in the city were offended um, by the tone of the defense lawyers. They spent much of the trial um, arguing that Lana Sawyer and people like her simply didn't matter, that they weren't people of importance, that nobody knew them, that they were, quote, obscure people, um, that, quote, nobody knew um, who they were. This was said by one of the attorneys who, it turns out, lived two doors away from Lana Sawyer and so clearly knew exactly who she was. But the point is that the, this, um, the case the, seemed to be a perversion of justice. Um, Bedlow was represented by six of the best attorneys um, in the nation at the time. And the first public indication of discontent was about four days later when a little 
um, oblique uh, reference in the newspaper t um, raised questions about what is justice if a gentleman can, can hire so many attorneys that he can effectively buy justice? And what does it mean in a courtroom to defend the, the character and the testimony of a woman like Mother Carrie, who's a madam, uh, while disparaging the character and reputation of a woman like Lana Sawyer, who in fact had a, um, a reputation as completely innocent and, and modest and prudent. So outrage built, um, and a week after the trial, riots broke out in the city. Riot sounds so really random um, compared to what actually happened. Um, th this is a, like an 18th century crowd action like the Boston Tea Party or the New York Tea Party for that matter. Um, in which the crowd had a very disciplined and organized sense of what they were about. Mm -hmm. So while Mother Carrie and her um, girls ran out the back door, um, the rioters climbed up to the top of the house and began tearing it apart. Um, so this was a, an action against the property. They literally pulled the house apart, destroyed all the furniture, threw the feather beds, tore the feather beds open. Some pe people came home covered in feathers. Um, <laughs> And then the crowd went and attacked a series of other brothels, um, and then the riots resumed the next night, and all maybe six or a dozen um, brothels were dismantled, wow. um, all of them brothels run by women. So the case is over as a case. Harry Bedlow's been acquitted. But uh, Lana Sawyer's side, if you will, or her stepfather, uh, goes after Bedlow again in a civil suit? Yeah, that was, for me, a real surprise, that... I'd always kind of assumed, for a long time, I'd kind of assumed that this case ended with the end of the criminal trial. And then it turned out there was this public outrage, these riots, this newspaper war, and then there was this civil suit, which was a crazy form of law um, called a seduction suit. And a seduction suit was a form of law that has all these arcane requirements, um, and it makes no literal sense. So the premise of a seduction suit is that the father is an employer, and the daughter is his servant, and that he was therefore damaged to the amount of her lost labor. Okay. with me? Yes. Technically a labor action, and but in a seduction suit, everybody knows that the labor is irrelevant, and in fact, um, as seduction suits develop over time, this is one of the first really significant seduction suits in American history. Generally, the... the Juries award more money in the cases where it's least likely that the woman involved does any significant housework. And they're victorious, or the the stepfather of uh, Lana Sawyer is victorious, but they find it hard to collect any money from Bedlow. Why would that be? Yes, they collect a big judgment. Um, the seduction suit I'll just mention is a year to the almost to the day after the rape trial in the same courtroom. So it's kind of an interesting question as to why the jury, why one jury decides one thing and the other jury decides another thing. But you're asking about why it was hard to recover money from Henry Bedlow. And there's three basic reasons. The first is that Henry Bedlow didn't have any actual money himself. Um, he was supported by his parents during these years, and even though he was in his late 20s. Um, and then second, his parents were not <laughs> inclined to bail him out. Um, and became really stubborn about the matter. So he ended up getting thrown into debtor's prison um, by Lana's stepfather um, for failure to pay the debt. As, and I think at some level, Lana 
um, stepfather was thinking that Bedloe's family, his rich family, would not let him stay in debtor's prison, that they would bail him out. Um, but they let him rot there for a good 18 months. Um, and instead, they um, employed Alexander Hamilton, um, newly retired from his tenure as Secretary of the Treasury, to get Bedloe out. Was Hamilton successful? Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, Hamilton did come, but it was only after Hamilton tried and failed two other completely dishonest and really cruel strategies um, to get Henry out. Uh, The first had to do with a a financial accounting um, ploy, um, and the second amounted to a kind of um, reputational blackmail. Um, They produced forged letters from Lana in which she confessed to having um, perjured herself in court to, to get Bedloe uh, convicted. Oh, Hamilton did that, huh? Well, Hamilton certainly did the first um, and was, I think, clearly involved in the second. Okay, so, and again, let me try to advance this story. Harry Bedloe's acquitted at the criminal trial, if you will. He loses the civil trial, goes to debtor's prison. He's been there for 18 months. He get, finally gets released from debtor's prison. Does he have to make any kind of payment to Alana's uh, stepfather? Yeah, he gets out of debtor's prison by ultimately negotiating, a. the attorneys negotiate a reduced um, set amount of money that the Bedloes are, are going to pay. Um, and they... It's, I think they agree to basically to pay half of what they initially owed, um, which for somebody like Callanan is better than nothing. Uh, and they agree to pay half of that sum um, down, um, and they agree to pay the other half in a year. Um, so now it begins, it's the, the person who is taking on this obligation is Bedloe's father. So now instead of Bedloe owing Callan, uh, Lana Sawyer's stepfather money, it's Bedloe's father owing Lana Sawyer um, stepfather money. Let me ask you what happens to the main uh, participants in this drama. What happens to Harry Bedloe? Do you know? I mean, what, what's he do with the rest of his life? Harry Bedloe, um, there were some other twists and turns in the relationship between Lana Sawyer and Henry Bedloe, but Henry Bedloe did three basic things. First, he never really managed to figure out how to manage his financial affairs. Um, so he spent actually a lot of his life, he inherited a good deal of money from his um, parents when they died in 1798 um, in terms of he, he inherited property, but he never managed to effectively manage the property that he inherited. Um, and so he spent actually a good deal of his the rest of his life in debtor's prisons in New Jersey and then in back in New York City. Wow. What happened to Lana Sawyer after all of this drama? The frustrating, most frustrating thing for me about this project, this book, is has been that we know so little about what ultimately happened to Lana Sawyer. Um, I think there's pretty good evidence that she got married to a man named Steinmetz, and I like to think that that was a um, good relationship and in a way that she reached kind of closure and moved on with um, from what had happened earlier uh, with Henry Bedloe. There's no real way of knowing. I, I suspect that she moved out of town, um, that she began a new life elsewhere. That was certainly what a lot of other women um, did in this period when 
they were trying to avoid or get it out from under the shadow of scandal. John Sweet is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's the author of The Sewing Girl's Tale, a story of crime and consequences in revolutionary America. John Sweet is former director of the University of North Carolina's interdisciplinary program in sexuality studies. His first book, Bodies Politic, Negotiating Race in the American North, was a finalist for the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Listeners like you keep The Historian's Podcast on the internet. Click our GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com.